This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 391, August the 13th, 1997. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and I will attempt to answer uh, some of your questions, those at least that we feel competent to answer. Mark Rushdooney is not with us since he is out of town. We have a very interesting question from Richard A. Lewis in Pittsburgh, New York. Could you talk about the entry of the United States into World War I? Specifically, what was the role of Woodrow Wilson? Did he attempt to undermine peace efforts in 1915 and 1917? I'm not sure we can answer that as precisely as perhaps you would want, but the position of the United States when World War I broke out was one that had more or less prevailed since the time of George Washington. George Washington felt that it was very, very important for us to stay out of the European power politics. Europe was dedicated to the balance of power which meant that if any nation got too strong, then alliances were formed against it by the other powers in order to overthrow it. This had continued for generations. It had bled Europe. And Washington was very astute in warning against that. Moreover, two subsequent presidents furthered Washington's uh, doctrine. With the Monroe Doctrine, the position was taken that the United States would not allow the European powers to enter into the politics of the Americas, North, South, or Central. They could do this and uh, pit one power against another and introduce the balance of power politics into the Americas and keep them permanently in conflict. Then a third president, one very much neglected in our time, was Polk, P-O-L-K who furthered this doctrine and applied it specifically to Texas. Texas was an independent republic. It had never been a part of Mexico, contrary to the mythology of our time. It had been a part of the uh, Spanish Empire, one of the departments in it. When the Spanish Empire broke up, the various aspects of uh, that empire in uh, the northern part of Central America and in North America declared their independence and 
tried to set up separate countries. Only one succeeded because Mexico uh, continued the imperialism of the Spanish Empire only not as kindly as the empire had been. And the states that refused to go into uh, the Mexican state, it waged war against. The only one that successfully maintained its independence was Texas. And of course, subsequently, Santa Ana sought to conquer it, and the final conclusion was the Mexican War. However, Texas was a small area. It did not have the population nor the financial uh, wherewithal to be an independent country. And Britain immediately loaned vast sums of money uh, to Texas. Now, the British uh, position was that their loans were innocent. The American position was, we don't believe you, but innocent or not, it will make Texas a satellite of London, and this we cannot tolerate. So, Polk annexed uh, te uh, Texas, and he insisted that no American state could become in any way a satellite of the European powers. Thus, the United States took a very, very strongly uh, pro-freedom role in regard to South and Central America. This is not to say that we abided by it perfectly in the era before World War One. Of course, we did interfere with Spain and the and Cuba and the Philippines, and we sent the Marines into various Caribbean and Central American countries uh, with uh, some non-independent uh, ideas in mind. In other words, we were going to help various companies. However, at the same time, in some instances, we did a great deal of good for those countries. In fact, what little there is in the way of improvements in one or two of those countries is still a relic of the marine occupation. Well, the overwhelming opinion, however, of the American people was that they did not want involvement in Europe. A great many of the uh, peoples in the United States were refugees from Europe. They came here to escape the draft because they felt the powers in the various country were ruthlessly using 
them and sacrificing their lives for their political gains. As a result, they were bitterly anti-war, anti-Europe. However, the situation was a difficult one because Woodrow Wilson was quite an admirer of Britain and its empire. He was fanatically pro-British. He felt that some kind of working together of Britain and the United States would be the foundation of any future world order. Thus, very quietly, he early on began to work to place us on the side of Britain. There was, to a degree, a shooting war before we entered, and this was true again in 1940 and 41, before Pearl Harbor. One of the things that uh, Wilson did was to take advantage of the foolishness of some of the German uh, representatives. For example, the German embassy in uh, Mexico did indulge in some very stupid things aimed at America, at the United States, partly in response to what they knew Wilson was doing, but all the same it was uh, the height of folly and it was grist for... Wilson's mill to arouse the American public. Now, there's another aspect here. We have, in recent years, been spoken of as basically a British country in our composition. In other words, that the major group in the United States is of British descent. Well, that is uh, true and not true. It is often stated that it is of primarily English descent, and that is clearly wrong. It is British, but the Scots at the time of the War of Independence outnumbered the English by more than two to one. This was, a, as one British agent reported to London, a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian rebellion that the colonies were putting on. Then, too, the German population was very, very high. It was a factor before World War One and before World War Two. The German population wanted no involvement now, before World War II, some of them were a, a minority, definitely, uh, pro-national socialist. But the basic German position was, we don't want involved. This was the position of all the other groups that had come over here. The Germans constitute, according to most scholars, 13% or 12% as against 
13, maybe 14 percent were English. That's not altogether accurate. One of the things we have to realize is that uh, there always have been lazy people in the government bureaucracy. At Ellis Island, as the immigrants would land, uh, the clerks would take down their name and spell it out as best they could. But there were lazy uh, men in the lineup there who would uh, look at someone and ask him his name and he'd say, Makotichan. They'd say, What? Your name is Smith. Or something like that. They would do this with Germans, with Armenians, with everybody. They, they just simplify it and say, you'll never get along with that name here. A lot of Schmitz became Smiths. A lot of Müllers became Miller. And so on. And this has distorted the perspective. If you look in any phone book and see all the Millers, for example, and you were to check on them, you would find that a fair percentage of them were Mueller originally, and their name was changed when they came here. So there was a considerable sentiment, both in World War One or before World War One and before World War Two, against any kind of intervention. The ground being this is something special. The United States is not involved in the centuries-old battles and conflicts of Europe. Let's stay out. But Woodrow Wilson did have messianic dreams. He was going to be the world savior, make the world safe for democracy, as he said, create a one-world order, the League of Nations. He was going to end war. So he was determined to get into the war to make a name for himself. Now, let me add this and I'll turn the mic over to the others. This has been the insane dream of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson was not alone. One of his protégés, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had the same dream. He put us into World War II with the same ideas in mind. Churchill had an agenda also, a personal one. And Stalin had his world agenda a world Marxist order. And Hitler had his dream of an empire to the east. So we have been the victims of the wild dreams of people in power and great numbers who have been ready to follow them. Douglas, do you want to comment on... Uh, Mr. Lewis's question. 
Well, I think another factor has to be taken into consideration around the time of the World War One. The um, British and the French and the Germans and uh, the Americans were beginning to uh, look for oil in the Middle East. And I think the futurists in the industrial sector here in the United States uh, taking a look at Henry Ford's assembly lines and looking forward to uh, the mechanization of industry as well as the mechanization of uh, personal uh, transportation here in this country uh, were concerned that uh, uh, the Europeans, particularly the British, might get a corner on the, the oil market. And uh, I think that's perhaps another reason why they wanted to get involved in European politics. The British were, uh, at that time, were uh, uh, quite proactive in uh, looking for oil around the world. And uh, I think that's probably another reason they were looking at the dollar sign as well. Andrew, I'll just mention quickly, Rush, we didn't point out that Woodrow Wilson was uh, the son of a Presbyterian uh, minister, and uh, he himself was president of Princeton College at a time when, I think it would be fair to say, Rush, it was starting to be riddled with liberalism. Of course, then there was, a few years later, the reorganization of, um, of the seminary. So uh, he was probably what we would call, in general, a bland, liberal um, Presbyterian, whose religious views definitely influenced his political views. Yes. Um, one thing I want to pose a question before we go on real quickly, Rush. Uh, I know you speak so much about World War One. Would you mention just briefly, from your perspective, some of the fundamental changes in the world uh, generated by World War One? How the world was different after World War One than before? Yes. The end of uh, the humanistic era with a state as uh, the Messiah, as it were, began with World War I. To this day, we have very, very few accounts of how horrifying a war that was, how bitterly it was fought, how terrible the casualties were. I forget the name of the historian, but a book, The Rites of Spring, R-I-T-E-S, is a grim and horrifying account of uh, World War I, how young men went to battle with dreams of glory, how the first Christmas in the trenches, the British and German soldiers stopped, came together with their food and sang carols together, but that never happened again. The war became grim and murderous. It became an incredible nightmare. The area on the Western Front had one of the wettest years on record, and it was nothing but mud by the 
foot in depth and more. The stench of rotting bodies was around all the men. The real story of that war has rarely been told. It is a wonder that more of the men did not go insane, but only a handful did. You must realize these were green kids, farm boys predominantly from the farms of America. And they were in there only in the latter part of 1917 to 18. We were in it about a year. But the others from 1914 to November the 11th, 1918. Lord Grey of England When war was declared, looking out across the channel and seeing the lights go off, said the lights are going off all over Europe. They shall not be lit again in our time. And he meant the light of civilization, that this was the beginning of the end. we do not realize how much statism has developed since then because as Lenin recognized war is a form of revolution if you want revolution push the country into wars great and small and with each war you will expand the powers of the state and of course this was the goal of some well, one of the things that happened was, of course, that at the same time we were undergoing revolutions of another kind. We went into the war in the horse and buggy age. We came out of it with Model T Fords filling the country. We went into it with the airplane hardly more than uh, a new discovery and almost a toy. After a year or two of war, it became an important weapon of war. The world changed. We went into it a rural people and came out an urban people, totally changed. We still had a rural outlook, rural roots, until the end of World War II, by which time we were predominantly an urban people. As a rural people, the old-time religion was still very strong among the American people. And... It changed with the war. You had very quickly what was known as the flapper age develop. The roaring twenties, a time of bootlegging and gangsters. Now compared to today, Chicago was a tame place under Capone. 
fewer mo- uh, murders in a year than are now commonplace in a month or less. But at that time, the whole thing was a shock to the American people. They had grown up in an atmosphere where in much of the country you never locked your door, where people came by the millions to the United States and quickly got ahead because they all went to work Within a half a dozen years at the most, they had accumulated enough money in order to go out and rent a good home or buy a house. There was that constant dream of upward mobility. And the result was that the country had an upbeat, optimistic outlook. It's something that continually amazes me and I regard it as very important to think that in the 20s and 30s there was this clearly optimistic clearly uh, exuberant temper among the people. There were no problems that the American people were not going to lick. And uh, those who saw themselves as American were all these immigrants. They fell in love with this country. They saw here opportunities that didn't exist anywhere in Europe. So now we have a deep pessimism. And of course, it's because people have become less and less the masters of their own lives as the state has taken over. There's one important aspect of the First World War, I I wonder what you think, what the effect was of the uh, demise of the monarchies as far as running the countries in Europe. Most of the monarchies were replaced by national uh, legislative bodies. Yes. Think of the empires that were destroyed by World War I. The Ottoman Turkish Empire which was in Europe and Asia Minor, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which occupied all of Central Europe and into the Balkans, the German Empire, which included colonies in Africa, the Russian Empire, which included the Baltic states and part of Poland and a great deal else. Alaska. Some, what? Alaska. Well, they sold that earlier. But uh, the thing is, uh, the Russian Empire was quickly reconstituted by the Marxists, but a host of small states now filled Europe. And various parts of those empires are continuing to break up. 
the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Czech Republic, and uh, has broken away from what was Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia was a combination of several countries, and it has, uh, in the past few years, divided. There are strong hints of further divisions within Europe as things are breaking up. Rush, let me follow up on that question with a related one. Do you think that uh, in actuality World War I in its consequences was more perhaps staggering, devastating, epical than even World War II was? In a sense, yes. World War II had several very important factors that were new. However, it was in a real sense a continuation of World War One, both in the uh, messianic hopes with regard to the United Nations, very early voiced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and yet uh, a counter-movement. Stalin was going to use World War II to further world revolution. And, of course, revolution did occur after the war, and the French and British empires were dismantled. Roosevelt gave a major amount of help to Stalin in that uh, destruction of the imperial system. Uh, for better or for worse, uh, his role in the entire matter was a very considerable one. Now, uh, Douglas, you were in Vienna when you were in the army, weren't you, in Austria? Yes, uh, at the time I was there in the 1950s, uh, early 1950s, uh, Austria was occupied by the four powers, the British, the French, the Americans, and the Russian. And uh, Vienna was similar to Berlin. It was partitioned. And uh, uh, there, was, uh, there was an armistice in force. There was no final peace treaty, which didn't, uh, wasn't signed until October 1955. Uh, but the British, the French, and the Americans had to wait on the Russians until the Russians were finished looting the eastern part of the country. They stole everything that had any value whatsoever. They left the people in absolute poverty. They left the farmers uh, with nothing more than pitchforks mm. and hand implements. They stole all of the tractors. They stole all of the machinery. They stole all the engines out of the boats on the Danube and just left the, the hulls. Uh, they even stole the metal window frames out of factories, pried them out of the walls of concrete buildings uh, in, uh, in the eastern part of uh, Austria. So uh, they left the country pretty poor. They even stole the plumbing and the pipes. Exactly. Anything Ripped metal. them out of buildings. Yeah. You know, and I, I heard uh, uh, from uh, someone, one of the security services, that 
they simply piled all this stuff in a huge staging area outside Moscow uh, and left it to rust and had beautiful lathes and uh, machine tools and uh, because they had no one with the technical ability to run them uh, but rather than allow the West uh, to have them or allow the Austrians to have them, they, it, was, it was booty. It was just uh, as if it was the, the Mongol hordes that swept over uh, Eastern Europe and stripped it, and uh, that was their booty, which they had to pile up just outside Moscow. And it, it just went to ruin. Not long after the satellite Russian states in Central Europe were abandoned by the Soviet Empire someone who was there was describing to me the truly magnificent buildings uh, that had been built stone structures by the Austro-Hungarian Empire administrative centers uh, army centers and so on and now just stripped and left in uh, shambles by the Russians. And I was told of one complex, I don't recall where it was now, I think in Hungary, that if someone from the West went there with enough funds, they would have a complex of building that would provide a magnificent university campus if they would invest enough money to uh, restore those structurally sound buildings to what they were before the Russians gutted them. Well, all of the military uh, bases in uh, Austria were uh, that the Americans built for the American forces stationed there were permanent. They were poured concrete buildings. They had steam heat. Uh, you know, everything was, mm-hmm. was pretty good quality and all of those buildings were left to the Austrians when the Americans moved out in the latter part of 1955 most of those buildings became either uh, part of university complexes or were used for, as uh, government administrative buildings one can actually say that in a sense World War I is not yet over because all the damage caused by it has not yet been fully uh, dealt with. Well, the, the thing that, that struck me in 1955, I went to Munich, uh, Germany, and virtually all of the uh, apartment buildings, which were located not too far from the, the rail yards, uh, were destroyed. I mean, block after block after block after block, because it was a pr- it was not a primary target; it was a secondary target. Uh, but the uh, bombers returning to Italy uh, that were bombing targets in southern uh, uh, Germany that were of strategic value, such as factories and that sort of thing, uh, in what are called the Bavarian states of southern Germany and uh, northern Austria. Uh, they would drop the, if they were unable to drop their bombs because the target was obscured by bad weather 
they were told to drop their bombs on the rail yard in Munich, and these guys didn't care. I don't think they even aimed. They just, you know, got somewhere over the area and let them go, and they just wiped out block after block of the, these apartment buildings. But the thing that struck me, and this is 1955, is that the Germans didn't even bother to determine who owned those buildings or to try to repair them or build them. They just went over to the edge of town and built a whole new city. Uh, these uh, huge uh, uh, swinging arm type cranes that rise as the building goes up. Apparently they invented those. And they were there were uh, dozens of them putting up high-rise, brand new high-rise office buildings in... Um, in the south, on the south side of uh, of Munich, uh, Germany, and uh, it was just the vitality of it. I mean, they were building a whole new city rather than taking time to try to to uh, rebuild the old part and find out who owned them or do any repair work on it. They just needed the new office buildings to get going in a hurry. That's what that's it is the thing that struck me about it. You could you I always used to get an a, a room on the top floor of the Bonhoff Hotel, which was a hotel that was built right over the railroad station, and you could see out across the city. And uh, Munich is a city uh, with that has uh, 53 uh, large churches, nine of them of cathedral size, and you can see architecture that spread all the way from about the 10th century all the way to the present huge cathedrals where they could hold multiple gatherings of people and they're so large that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't interfere with each other they could hold uh, weddings uh, funerals uh, a service uh, simultaneously and they're they're just huge well one of the grim things about world war 1 is how uh blithely the great powers prepared for it as though it was going to be a bonanza when it began for their particular goals. I know that my father, when he was uh, in his mid-teens, might have been 16, I believe, at the time, uh, in Armenia, was hired by a couple of... Uh, two or three English travelers who were supposedly writing a travel book. He very quickly found out that they represented the foreign office or uh, something connected with that and were there to see if there were any revolutionary groups among the Armenians they could contact and encourage uh, to stage a revolt at the break of war. Well, uh, they didn't find any, and as my father said, there were only fools and hotheads who were unrealistic enough to believe that uh, they could do anything without any arms to speak of. And uh, he told these men when he found what their motive was that uh, what they were doing was heartless and cruel. He said... Uh, your uh, government will have n no consideration for our people 
It's only their objectives and how we can serve them and if we can be encouraged to stage a revolt and help your purposes when war breaks out, well and good. You will allow us to be butchered without a second thought. And, uh, of course, before too long, the Turks somehow, after the trip was over, learned of the nature of these two men and what they represented. And uh, after that, my father uh, had to go under a number of aliases uh, when uh, early on he added I-A-N to his name to make it look like all other Armenian names so they wouldn't spot Rushduni as such. And uh, I've forgotten uh, the other aliases. In fact, earlier this year, my brother told me that someone in the family had encountered another alias that he had used because he was a marked man. And this is the way the various countries operated. Uh, In some respects, the Austro-Hungarian government precipitated the war. Uh, As uh, Laffer pointed out in his book, Keepers of the Gate, a book on the Serbs. But the saddest fact is that the peoples in power have learned nothing from World War One and Two. They still plan on using people here and there, playing games with them, to further their goals. And they can make at one time a a good ally and friend out of someone like the dictator of Iraq and then overnight convert him into a bad, bad person when they decide that uh, he no longer serves their purposes. It's a cruel, heartless, and totally amoral game. Well, the method of warfare in World War I um, indicated the lack of uh, concern for human life. Trench warfare uh, is a war of attrition, and uh, it was the first large-scale use of chemical agents to kill people. Yes, and uh, the real lack of uh, medical care caused a lot of men to die with gangrene. Uh, a lot of men had their hearing destroyed, their eardrums broken from the uh, concussion from the weapons that they were using, and the uh, uh, compared to World War II, where it was more of a strategic war, where they would leapfrog around the enemy and and uh, bottle them up rather than just trying to kill off everybody before they advanced ahead on the battlefield. Well, the United States made quite a contribution to Germany 
uh, before World War I. The German general staff studied the battle scenes and uh, the histories of the American Civil War. They recognized that a new stage of warfare, which had been in the making, had come into full bloom with that war, as waged by the North. Total war. Now, there were some guerrilla forces in the South that had the same concept, but uh, the North systematically waged total war. Well, total war is waged against not only the army of the other side, but against the civilians. So that modern warfare is uh, planned to hit hard against civilians. If we go into a third world war, what with missiles and all, the major target will be the American civilian population. We haven't been subjected to it before except, of course, uh, as the South was to some degree under Sherman. So a major step was taken in the strategy of warfare uh, by Germany in World War I. Uh, Churchill very quickly picked up the lesson. He waged war, total war, against the German civilian population uh, in both wars. Uh, one of the key figures was a blockade of food, a destruction of food sources in order to starve the population into submission. And of course this is why in World War I Germany deep in France and its armies way out in uh, foreign territories had to surrender. It was near total collapse for lack of food. And the uh, average height of Germans dropped two inches after the war because of the hunger experienced and its effect on uh, children who were conceived and born in that era. So it was a, a very, very grim uh, thing. And we have yet to see how far that grimness can be extended. If there is a third world war, and it's not unlikely, especially with our absurd and insane foreign policy, it's really the, the arrogance of, of these leaders who are convinced that they will not make the same mistakes from the past. Yes. And every generation keeps doing this right. through history. One of the worst things is that our propagandists keep uh, attacking the military as though they are lusting for war. And uh, I've known uh, a few top military men in the United States. And I've talked with them. And one of them expressed it most plainly when he said, 
it is idiocy to think that we who are generals are itching for war. There is nothing that destroys more military reputations than a war. Most of the generals are going to wind up as losers. They're going to go down in history in infamy, not always because they were lacking in any character, but simply that's the way the things worked out. So he said, you'd better believe we generals don't want a war. It's the last thing we want. We prefer to do our duty in peacetime and draw a pension. Sure. Well, they've raised the ante now. Uh, the losing side, the leaders of the losing side are prosecuted as war criminals. Well, you can make a case. Anybody who prosecutes a war is a war criminal. That's right. Because you're going to have to break things and kill people in order to prosecute a war. And that idea of an international tribunal, you know, that's also tends to spring from the messianic design idea, you know, the world courts and all that oh, sort of yeah. thing. Well, with each brush fire war since World War II, we have seen our freedom diminish and we have seen the United Nations increase its power so that there are troops now American troops and other troops. And what is it? Over 60 countries around the world? Supposed peacekeepers? Yes. Rush, you know, that reminded me of something. I read some time ago, I was reading um, the book The Social Philosophers by Robert Nisbet, and he was pointing out how that war also tends to destroy the fabric of the family. Yes. That's a very powerful statement. I can't remember all of it, but he was making a powerful point along that line, and I'm sure that's something that we could talk about a long time, but it is something that needs to be observed, I think. Otto Scott is writing a biography of uh, Woodrow Wilson. It's taking him forever to complete it because new material keeps uh, coming out. Uh, papers and documents that were sealed for a long time are uh, rapidly being opened up. So more and more uh, very damaging information is coming out. You wonder how much more there is. <laughs> <laughs> a great deal, I'm afraid. Well, this was a very important question because... Our whole century has been under the shadow of uh, World War One. In fact, uh, some scholars have said the 20th century begins with 1914, and it ended with the downfall of Gorbachev. However, I'm not sure it's ended. I hope they're right. We are still living in terms of that Wilsonian dream. Most of our presidents have had it. The uh, dream is very much alive with Clinton as it was with Bush 
and with their predecessors. We have to wonder how they're going to pay for all this. You got troops in 60 countries around the world. The Russians have found out that you can't maintain an army unless you can pay them. They're mm -hmm. not going to stick around. Uh, you know, their power is diminished because they are unable to maintain the same military presence. And uh, we've got all of this debt. Uh, we're off the gold standard. Our paper money, a dollar today, buys what a nickel would buy in 1969. Uh, there is an end to everything. There is an end to every currency when it's inflated. There come, becomes a point when people will no longer accept that currency as payment because it won't buy anything. And, you know, we're, we have continually moved in that direction since the end of World War II, and at some point nobody's going to take dollars and payment for anything anymore. Yes. And we're not, then at that point, we're not going to be able to maintain those troops in those 60 countries. It's, it's like a, uh, uh, a game uh, where uh, uh, we're going to be left uh, with a joker here pretty soon because uh, when the money runs out, the entire system will collapse like a house of cards. It cannot go on forever despite what the people think. You know, Wall Street, uh, the stock market cannot continue to go up forever. The Japanese found that out recently. Uh, the Germans found found it out. Uh, in uh, uh, they had a, a tremendous blow off of inflation immediately after World War One, the early 20s. Uh, we found out that the stock market can't go up forever in 1929. Uh, the arrogance. That we will, that history will not repeat itself. It just astounds me that intelligent people, uh, that there are people out there who still think that they're going to reinvent history. Yeah. Well, this has been, as uh, G. Eliot pointed out, about 1959, the bloodiest century in all of history, with a higher percentage of mankind having perished already due to war, mass murders, famine, slave labor camps, and so on and on. And it isn't over yet. Well, I think the excesses of Marxism uh, killed more people than and all of the other causes combined. Uh, you know, you recount the uh, the millions who died in the Ukraine under Stalin, uh, the uh, millions that died in Southeast Asia, the millions that have died in Africa, all at the hands of Marxists who feel that the only way to get control of a population is by killing them. One of the consequences of uh, World War One was the massive uprooting of many peoples. Now, of course, I come from an Armenian background, and uh, there were three million Armenians in historic Armenia. According to Walter Marshall Lang, 
one million was left of the three after the massacres. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening. Do send your questions. We do enjoy receiving them, and uh, I'm sorry we can't always answer them. Thank you, and God bless you.